0: Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God. For you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. The church I served in seminary was located in one of the most conservative regions of the country. Johnson City, Tennessee is nestled in the beautiful Appalachian Mountains and steeped in a rich cultural tradition grounded in the roots of the Scotch-Irish people who settled there in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Those early European settlers brought with them a tight-knit sense of family and community and also a very strong suspicion of authority and change. And that struggle to embrace change and difference has left the region struggling to move forward into the 21st century, especially when it comes to LGBTQ rights. Though there is a significant community of LGBTQ persons and families in that region and several large colleges and universities, it has consistently been a challenge to organize and mobilize this community due to a climate steeped in fear. People are honestly scared of being out there due to anxieties over the loss of family, friends, faith communities, employment, housing, even concerns for physical safety, and that has only recently begun to change. When I was there, the church that I served, a small liberal Presbyterian church, was one of only two congregations in the whole region for two hours in either direction that openly welcomed LGBTQ persons and families. It seemed every new person who found us was genuinely desperate for authentic community where they and their families could be themselves. Now not everyone was thrilled with the steps the congregation had taken to become more welcoming and inclusive. There was an older couple in the congregation who had joined because their teenage son loved the youth group and wanted to be in a church with his friends. The son was fairly progressive, but his parents were truly upset when they discovered that we had openly LGBT folks in the congregation, and in leadership positions. And that we were truly happy to have them. I'll never forget the day that Tom, the father, came into the office. The senior pastor, the secretary, and I were all sitting down together to lunch, and he barged in with a scowl on his face and said, how can you accept those people We all looked at each other, and the senior pastor replied, the same way we can accept all of God's children, because God loves them, and so should we. Tom wasn't convinced, and he tried to argue. The pastor listened to him and encouraged him to get to know the folks with whom he was having trouble accepting, people he was so convinced could not be real disciples of Jesus. I'm happy to say that Tom and his family stayed at the church, and they actually did get to know several of the LGBT folks. It's doubtful, though, that Tom's views on sexuality ever changed. But the way he treated folks did. I'll never forget when one of the young gay men in the congregation was nominated to be an elder, we were worried that Tom and his wife would create a scene in the congregational meeting. They didn't. Neither did they vote for the young man. They abstained. Afterwards, when I went over to talk to Tom, he said to me, You know, I still don't think it's right, but I do love that young man. He's honestly trying to follow Jesus. Now, Tom and his wife have both since died, but even as we found ourselves in such different places in our faith and life, I am so grateful. To have known them, because they taught me something about how to be open to the work of God around you, even when it seems like the ground underneath you is giving way. I think that's a big part of the lesson that Isaiah wants people of Judah, the people of Judah, to hear in this text that we read. The world around them is collapsing as the Assyrian Empire is waging a merciless war for the conquest of the nations around them. Assyrian soldiers have been ruthless in their treatment of those conquered. Those in Jerusalem have watched as the cities of the north have fallen one after the other, leaving only Judah with its capital of Jerusalem standing. Some argue for an alliance with other foreign powers as a way to resist the Assyrians, yet the prophet warns against getting involved in the conflict. Instead, the prophet pleads with the people to have faith in the power of God at work among them. God's presence will be revealed in the healing of those who suffer and in the restoration of life to those who have been pushed to the margins. Beginning among them, there will be a transformation of all the world, one where boundaries that exclude are obliterated and all forms of injustice are overcome. This is the vision in which the people must place their faith, not the powers of empires and their weapons. I can only imagine how hard it must have been for the people of Israel to hear those words. The armies of Assyria are literally knocking at the doors of Jerusalem. Yet the prophet says, don't pick up weapons, don't fight back, do not get involved in this conflict. Sometimes it's really hard for us to hear what God is saying to us, especially if we don't want to hear it. Even Jesus discovered that truth. This passage from Mark comes right after the confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders over following rules about ritual purity. They hold tenaciously to those traditions, but Jesus is more liberal in his interpretations of them. He understands and argues that while the rituals have meaning, they are not the ultimate marker of who is faithful to God. That's determined by the ways in which people treat others. The religious leaders, as we heard last week, are not impressed, so they chase Jesus out of that place, and he flees and ends up deep in Gentile territory. He's exhausted from the demands placed upon him and just wants a little bit of rest, but sadly it's not to be. This Gentile woman, this Syrophoenician woman, who has a daughter who is ill, has been watching him, and as soon as he enters a house, she ducks in behind him and falls at his feet and begs him to heal her daughter. Now, we don't know whether Jesus was having a bad day or whether he's getting at something deeper in meaning here, but his response seems to be out of character for him. He tells the woman that he has been sent to the people of Israel and that it, would be, it wouldn't be right to take the bread that has been given to them and give it to the dogs. Now that language should cause us to bristle because that's a pejorative term used in the first century by Jews to refer to Gentiles. It's one of those words that good Jewish mothers would have probably washed out the mouths of their children if they'd heard them use it. Yet here is our beloved Jesus calling Gentiles something less than beloved children of God. Now I'm inclined to believe that Jesus was probably exhausted, frustrated, and maybe even a little scared. The religious leaders have condemned him and his disciples. They've chased them out of town and forced them into a strange place. Like all of us, Jesus appears to have a breaking point, and this appears to be it. We can't forget that he was fully human. This woman, though, musters a depth of faith born out of desperation, and she pushes back against him. Yet even the dogs get the scraps from the table. Jesus is shocked by the woman's response and may be brought back to himself. He looks at the woman with surprise and admiration and says essentially, Well played. Go home. When you get there, you'll find your daughter as well. It seems in this moment of frustration, Jesus was inclined to give in to a sense of desperation, of being overwhelmed by the magnitude of the work ahead of him. In this moment, he seems to want to circle the wagons and focus only on the people of Israel. But God has bigger plans. And this woman is the voice of God speaking to Jesus, calling him to openness, calling him to listen. What's interesting is that just a few verses later, we get this short story of an encounter with the man born blind and with a speech or born deaf, and with a speech impediment. The man's friends bring him to Jesus and beg Jesus to help. Jesus takes the man away from the crowd and labors physically, labors to heal him. It's not just a word; it's physical. Jesus sticks his fingers in the man's ears and then spits into his hands and touches the man's tongue. And finally, Mark tells us Jesus sighed, which is an odd thing, but the Greek text means more than sigh. It's the same word that Paul uses when speaking of the groaning of all creation for redemption. It's almost as if in this moment, Jesus feels the yearning of the world for healing and wholeness. He then says, Ephatha, which our translations usually say means to be loosed or opened, but the real meaning of it is deeper. It means to be freed in the fullest sense of the word. In a way, Jesus' healing of this man illustrates the depth of his desire to see the whole world set free from prejudice and suffering. We have seen Jesus struggle with the magnitude of God's inclusive vision for the world and to be challenged by this Gentile woman. And now Mark gives us this story that shows Jesus living into that vision that sees Jesus open this man's ears and mouth just as Jesus' own heart and mind have been opened. Isaiah's vision of the world made whole and Mark's image of a Jesus who has his own understanding of God's work enlarged gives us all a fuller picture of the reign and rule of God. Wherever unjust boundaries are overcome and suffering is eased, there is the kingdom of God. This resonates deeply with James's thundering declaration that faith without works is dead. It's not enough to believe or trust. We must also act. We must reach out across the lines of difference that separate us from one another and seek to promote understanding and build community. For those held captive to fear and suffering, we must bring hope and peace. Fred Craddock, the great preacher, once told a story about a young missionary who had been serving for several years in India right after the Second World War. He had completed his term and was ready to return home to the United States. The church leaders who had sponsored his work wired him the money to purchase a ticket home, and he was ready to go. When the young man arrived in the port city from which he was due to leave, he found it overwhelmed by Jewish refugees who had fled Europe in those difficult days just after World War II. They were hungry and struggling to find a place to live. The young man's heart was broken. He took the money that had been wired to him for his voyage home, and he bought food for as many as he could. Some days later, when he wired church leaders asking for more money, they asked what he'd done with the money they'd already given him, and he told them that he'd used it to feed hungry Jewish refugees. The church leaders responded, but they don't even believe in Jesus. The young man replied simply, But I do. Amen.